We're, we're talking about it, giving you some basic ideas, but it's all based on Ephesians chapter 4. And we've talked about this months ago, but I want to just rehearse and make sure we're all on the same page, understanding why we're doing what we're doing. In Ephesians 4, he's talking about church ministry. And he starts in, in this passage, and he's talking about how Christ has ascended into heaven. And then he goes on in verse 11, and he says, And he gave some apostles some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a complete man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying itself in Christ. He's describing church. Let me ask you just a couple simple questions here. If you had to take a one-word statement and say, okay, this is God's goal for us, what one word or words stand out in this text that says this is God's goal for a church. What's that? Maturity. Any others? What'd you say? Ministering. Okay. Truth. Unity. Okay. Um, so I would put down some of those very same things that you had said really stand out in, especially in verses 11 through 14. Okay, that this is what he wants. The one stability, no longer tossed to, a bra- to and fro. Okay, and, and the reason we say that is, do people at times in other, other types of denominations, can they get screwy doctrine that isn't biblical, but it's based on traditions or experiences? Yes, no? Okay, for instance, for me, when I came to the faith, um, we had been taught to pray to saints. Okay, somebody had to unteach us that because that had been ingrained in our, in our mindset. Uh, and is it a truth that you should pray to saints? Should you pray to saints in heaven? No. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So with that in mind, what did God give the church to help in growth, stability, unity? Pastors. Okay, he gave pastors. Looking at that, keep on going, what is my job as pastor, according to this text, to teach, to edify, okay, for the perfecting of the saints, okay? So my job is to equip you for the work of ministry, okay, with that idea that involves you helping to build up the body, giving you the tools that you can help build up one another. That's my job. By the way, there is a tremendous, tremendous principle in this text, that we even call some of the Baptist distinctives. Okay, if you know what that means, that means historically churches like ours, uh, not necessarily only the Baptist, but there was a Baptistic we, uh, different point of view compared to a lot of the different denominations that many Bible churches and many, many some Baptist churches and others held to. We call them the Baptist distinctives, such as B stands for... The idea that the Bible is our sole authority. A stands for the autonomy of the local church. Does anybody remember what the P stands for in that anachronism? The, somebody said it. The priesthood of the believer. Okay, this text emphasizes the priesthood of the believer. Do you, do you see why? 
You can learn to do ministry. You can minister, and it's all about you doing the ministry, not just the professional, the clergy. It's about you being able to learn the Word of God to grow so you can do ministry and teach others. Tremendous truth. Tremendous truth. What is your job? According to this text, what's your job? Okay, keeping unity, good. Speaking the truth to one another in love. What's that? Using your gifts, that's the context of this, is using gifts so as to, the overall thing is to help contribute to the spiritual growth of the body. Not just the spiritual growth of us, but what other type of growth? Okay, the whole body, the idea of the numerical expanding the body. God is not wanting us to have us few and no more. We're supposed to be keep on reaching out. So our job is to help you. My job is to help you to be able to contribute to the spiritual growth of each other and to help spread the gospel. And that's something every single part can do. This is a really important principle. Everybody can do. I don't want, I don't want you to sit back and say, I could never do a Bible study with somebody. You can. You can. Okay, you can teach the Word of God. But first of all, you have to... You have to know it. You have to learn it, okay? And that way we're fulfilling the, com- the, the command of Christ, what we call the Great Commission, that all of us are involved in making disciples. Okay, making disciples. And the beauty of it is, when we are nervous about doing it, what is the promise at the end of the Great Commission? And lo, I am... Okay, so he helps us to do it because a lot of us at times, I don't know if you've ever experienced, a lot of us at times, we're not sure what to say in certain situations about the, you know, or how to answer initially. And the Lord just gives grace and helps, and sometimes you have to go back and restudy. And so with that in mind, our goal is to help you to be equipped, to equip you so that you can do Bible studies, you could teach in some different class settings, that you will try to reach out to somebody and say, hey, uh, I'll give you a Bible study. I can do one in my neighborhood. And we can get together and we can do Bible study. And so the goal of what we're trying to teach you is giving you the information to equip you so that you can help to make disciples with others. So the book that we're using to give us a hand, uh, do you have the, anybody have that book right, in, right here that I can, it's this one that's called Foundations, uh, that one right there, thank you. It's, uh, it's a cover like this, if you don't have one, go out in the foyer and grab one real quick so you can follow along. And it comes in two different translations, uh, English translations. One is uh, King James, one is more modern translation, but it helps you to be able to do Bible studies with some people. Now, in the book, we've covered a lot of these different sections already. We're in a section that is more in-depth. That's why it's at the end of the book. It's more in-depth. It's the doctrine of sanctification, which is really confusing which is hard even amongst evangelicals. For instance, in the New Testament, there was an ongoing problem that kept on happening. Galatians is your classic illustration. Also Philippians mentions, Ephesians mentions, that there was a group of people who came into the church that said, if you want to be sanctified, you want to be spiritual, you have to keep... Do you know what the blank is? You have to keep certain rules and regulations and traditions. And if you keep those certain rules and regulations and traditions... That's going to make you spiritual. And in, the old, and in the Old Testament, I'm sorry, and in the New Testament era, what were some of the rules and laws that they threw at the people? They go back to the Jewish circumcision. Anything else? 
Yeah, the, what foods they could eat. Going back to the Old Testament. Anything else? The feast days. Keeping the feast days. Observing things. In modern, let's take America because that's where we live. In modern America, are there any groups that have certain rules and regulations that say you have, if, if you do or don't do these things, you become spiritual? Are there groups that do that? Okay, what kind of things? Okay. Okay, baptizing babies comes in there. Okay, certain, you, you can't, can't eat meat on Fridays. It has to be just fish, okay? Anything else? Certain clothing, is there a certain, certain clothing pressures in our community? Okay, okay. There's even some groups that say you cannot drive, okay, vehicles on Sunday, different things like that. Uh, and certain, certain people set up different standards. Does that make me sanctified? If I have my hair cut a certain way, does that make me sanctified? And some of you say, absolutely not, because you don't have any. Um, if, if, by wearing a tie, does that make me sanctified? No, not at all. By singing a certain music, does that make me sanctified? Okay, so there's certain rules and regulations that get thrown out. Um, by, um, uh, I had a pastor friend that went to seminary, and he said, if we don't have church on Sundays and Wednesdays, we're not a spiritual church. Okay? It had to be Wednesdays. Okay? It, does that make us sanctified if we had church on Wednesday? What if we did it on Thursday? And he refused to support any missionary who did not have Wednesday night services but had a Tuesday or Thursday night service. Okay? And so we can get hung up on those things and uh, on certain, certain things that we like. And so we need to talk about, and, you're, and now, you're, now put yourself in a spot. You're dealing with a baby Christian. What do you tell the baby Christian? To be sanctified, you have to come to church with a tie. So they come to church wearing a tie. Does that make them holy? Okay. Um, if they come to church without a tie, does that make you sinful? Do you want to repent now? Or do, do, <laughs> okay, so, so we, need, we want to make sure that we're understanding what is sanctification. Okay? And then there's another element that hit the New Testament. And the other element that hit the New Testament churches was there was a group of people that so resisted rules and regulations, they said that once I'm saved, I can do anything. I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. It doesn't make any difference. I can sin like a demon, but I, I'm fine, I'm going to heaven. That too was what's in Galatians and Philippians and Ephesians, that they had those problems. And so you and I say, okay, let's, let's make sure we understand the meaning of sanctification. Just give it a, a single real short, short phrase. What is it? Oh, that's great. You're just mimicking Christ. The word literally means to set apart. The idea, and it comes, we mentioned this last time, that most of the times in the New Testament where you see the words holy or sanctified, they are the Greek or the Hebrew, depending on if you're Old Testament, New Testament, and it's almost all the time those words, kadash, or the idea of hagios. Hagioi is the noun or the people that are set apart. What was that translated in the New Testament? The people who are set apart. Saints. It's the word saints. Okay? And it's everybody who is born again. Not just a certain few that have been 
you know, canonized or categorized as better than the rest of us. The idea set apart is really important that you get this across to somebody. That it's being set apart for, from sin, um, you know, low, low standards, and there's another, there's an opposite of this. You're from something and you're Okay, two or four something. Okay, make sure you clear, clarify that. That people that, that have been set apart, we're, we are born again, we're set apart from living a life of our own uh, desires and sin, and we've been set apart to live for the glory of God. And so you have to have both of those. There's that balance that's there. And uh, so this idea could have been, in the Old Testament we mentioned that there were items like the building of the tabernacle, the clothing, uh, certain days, the, the Sabbath day in the Old Testament was set apart. And God then just kept on talking through that until he got people to understand that they were set apart. And so we mentioned last time that there's a need for sanctification. True or false, okay, we need, we need to be working in this area because we still have a sin nature. True or false? Born-again Christians. Okay, true. We still have a sin nature. Shows up way too often. Our sin nature remains in us until when? Okay, until we get to heaven, whether it be the rapture or death or whatever. Uh, good answer. Our sin nature is in conflict with the new nature created in Christ Jesus when he got born again. True or False. True. Okay. Some of us struggle with that even already today. Uh, it says put off, put on. Paul talks about in that Romans 7 passage, the things that I would, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do. And there's this constant battle. And then he ends up that paragraph, oh wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? And so he's very frustrated with it after he's been saved all this time. And so sanctification is that whole idea of winning over, going back into those, those areas. Now, here's the, the issue that we need to make sure we clarify today. Which one is it? You are already called in Scripture a holy nation, a holy people. Okay, that we've been talking, Pastor Arts mentioned that several times on the First Peter passage in Sunday nights. You're called saints. You're already that. But you're also told, be ye holy as I am holy. So which one is it? Are you holy or should you become holy? Now you sound like a politician. Okay. <laughs> but you're accurate. You're accurate. The answer is, yeah, yeah. Kevin's, Kevin's first answer I heard when he said was yes. Okay. Are we one or the other? The answer is yes. Because we need to understand what he had just mentioned positional sanctification and progressive or practical sanctification. They're theological terms, but they're, they're simple terms that you can understand. Let's see if we can explain real quickly. They're in your notes. You can be following along. You, the, the idea, and I've, I put it this way, okay, to, in addition to the notes, um, the idea of positional is my standing before God. How does God view me when he looks at me? When he looks at me and views me, I am covered by the blood of Christ, and I have shared something, Jesus has shared something with me. His own righteousness. So when God looks at me, he sees me as in Christ, covered by Christ. But so, so he looks at you, and he sees his son embracing you. Therefore, how does he view you? You're covered by Jesus. Does he view you as holy? Because Christ has shared his righteousness. The answer is Yes. 
That's why to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints already. I want you to catch something. The word sanctified, this is for your, your explanation as you share this with somebody. The word sanctified in that verse, it, 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 it just you can explain it very simply. In the original language, it's called a perfect verb. Okay, that has the idea that Deb and I were married. Are we still married? That's a perfect verb. We got married back in 1901. Okay, we got, it's untrue, okay. So we got married there, and what happened? It's still going on, okay? That's a perfect verb. That's the one that's used here. You were sanctified, and guess what? You are in the view of God, you are still sanctified. Okay, that's the idea here. The same thing is the idea in the word saints. Okay, you're called saints. Same idea. You were called once, and it's continuing all the way through. Very important in understanding this. The idea is perfect is that it, it doesn't stop. Therefore, you cannot lose your salvation. You see how this all blends together with all these different doctrines. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this is the text where he's talking about those who cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And he lists a whole bunch of different practices. And he says, but such were some of you. Some of the people in, Corinth, in the church of Corinth, they did those same things. But you are washed, you are sanctified. This one is a little bit of a different verb, but it's still the idea of past tense. And it's the idea that it was something done to you. Okay, we call that a passive verb. You didn't sanctify yourself. You were sanctified. And so it blends right together that same idea. And the same thing in the word justified. Uh, it's a legal term that it happened in the past and it is something that somebody did to you. Going a little bit further. God sees you as a holy people. See the passage? You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. God sees you as holy people. And all these passages together reveal the idea that you are already holy once you got born again. And so God looks at you and says, you're in Christ, you're holy. But now we have the flip side of it. We have the idea of this, we're going to call uh, positional, a standing before God, but the idea of progressive. Progressive sanctification has the idea of your walk before God. Okay, your legal standing before God, you're holy. But in your everyday walk as you go through life, do you still have to work at being holy? Yeah, be holy as I'm holy. This is what we're talking about. This is the difference. From the picture, for me, pictures make a lot more sense at times. From the, from the picture, and let's say that that little one on the left is a newborn, even smaller than that. Position of sanctification has to do with your relationship with God. Okay? Your being born again justified, converted, whatever words you want to use. It has to do, how many times do you get birthed into God's family? Once, okay? What does the other one have to do with? Okay, growing up. Growing up, the walking, everyday life. So positional is a one-time act. Progressive is the idea of your daily walk with the Lord, growing up, and how, how long does growing up take? Are you guys still growing up and learning things? Sure, hope so. Yeah, yeah, we do. Right, I agree with you. We hope so. We have to. Yeah, in your marriage, Absolutely. are you still learning things? <laughs> oh, some of you are just not touching that one at all. 
Chris is keeping his mouth shut the rest of this time this morning, right? Yeah. Um, so the idea is that lifelong. So with this in mind, let's, let's see, here's that same text, and he's going to use both these ideas. In the one passage, you're a holy nation, but in the other passage that's preceded, be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it's written, be ye holy. So Peter wasn't contradicting himself. He was talking about these two concepts that he is saying in the command in 1 Peter 5, 15, down at the, the very bottom, the command is, be holy, for I am holy. How many times does he say it? Did you catch it? Twice. Twice he's saying it. So it isn't something that simple. He says in all manner of conversation. What's that mean? How much of your life are you supposed to be holy? Name an area. Go beyond just everything. Somebody said speech. What else? Your entertainment. Your actions. Where you work. Anything else? Okay, your friendships. What's that? When you're alone. Okay. Okay, in your marriage. Every area. How about the way you pay bills? How about the way we respect government? How about the way we treat one another? Forgive? Okay, how about the way we do church? Okay, every area. Okay, in all areas, in all that we do. One area that he particularly itemizes is in 1 Thessalonians. Okay, this is an interesting. Now, if you were doing a Bible study with somebody who is a young, young person in the Lord, uh, a young Christian, okay, you're going you're gonna to want to touch this area uh, because they're being inundated with different viewpoints in this world. And as a Christian, this is this, and the reason I, th- I think that in this, the book, they, they mention this is um, the most private area for most of us is our sexuality. Okay? It's very private. And yet, God says in this area that is so personal and yeah, so private. You make sure that even in that private, private, private area, you're practicing holiness. Okay, First Thessalonians chapter 4. Okay, Let, let's set the scene straight that in this text, and if you're teaching this, and again, you all know this, but um, does the Bible make sexual relationships to, to be something evil and bad? No. Was, was there encouragement for sexual relations even before the fall? Think it through. Yes? No? Yes, there was. Yes, there was. Okay? That there's the idea. So, the, the sexual relationships and activity is not a part of the, the fall. It got corrupted like everything else with the fall. And so the Bible's going to talk about this, and in this passage that he's going to talk about, he's talking about sanctification, mentions it's the word several times, and then with physical relationships between different people. Let's pick up the passage, and then you need to fill in the blanks. Furthermore, I'm in chapter 4, verse 1. Let's get the context. Then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you received of us how you ought to walk to please God, so you would abound more and more. There's that idea of bearing fruit, more fruit, much fruit. Okay. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God, even your... What's your Bible read? 
Okay. He goes, that you should abstain from, what's your Bible read? Anybody have another translation? Sexual immorality? Good, thanks. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Okay, anybody have another phrase for vessel? Body? Okay, thanks. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not, that no man go on and defraud, defraud his brother in any matter. Okay, in this passage, what do you learn about sanctification in verse 3? Now, you're trying to get the person you're doing the Bible study. You want them to fill in the blank. What would you encourage them to put in here? What's that? It's the will of God. Okay, very clearly, it's the will of God. If people say this all the time, I, want, I, I, I don't know what God's will for me is. There are several passages that are very clear. Here's one of them. This is the will of God, holy living, holy living. So you put in there, sanctification is the will of God. I, I, I'm, this is for you. Okay, because you're teaching. I'm going to expand that a little bit more and, and itemize for each and every one of us. The plural here. Okay, this is for you. This isn't just for me, the preacher, or the deacons, or the Sunday school teachers. How many people are supposed to be practicing sanctification? All believers. All believers. Every believer. Just the young people. All believers. All believers. Every age. Okay, that and abstaining in practicing, practicing sanctification, abstain from sexual immorality, abstain, abstain from all types of sexual immorality or misconduct, which is pretty easy, the sexual mis misconduct is pretty easy to do in this society. Yes, no? Okay. Because people can do internet real quickly and try to cover it. People have affairs and try to cover them up all the time. Okay, so, and, and in our society... If it feels good, okay, okay, and people will go along with it. So even in the area of our most private, uh, private area of our life, God says sanctification. That, that's in verse 3. What do you get out of verse 7? What's that? Live holy. Okay, it's there again. Is that idea that he's making that comment? For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. God doesn't want us to live ungodly. It includes, okay, the ungodliness with even what is popular in our culture. Do we have any, any sexual perversions that are popular in our culture? Yes? Oh, we, we have more than just a few. Okay, we have a lot. We have a lot. Okay, even if it's popular with the culture, what's supposed to be our standard of conduct? The holiness of God. Okay, that holiness that he's given to us. We are called, we are assigned to live holy lives. Interesting text. Okay, I'm going to say that this is a challenging text depending upon who you're dealing with in a Bible study. Can you imagine when it would be difficult? Okay, if you're dealing with somebody who's living together. Can you think of others that this would be challenging to deal with? Homosexual couples, transgender situations, this becomes very, very challenging. But you're supposed to be teaching the truth in love. Okay? So you have to teach the truth. You just have to be gracious and you guys will handle it wisely. Um, Taking a little bit further. Okay? This is... This is my summary thoughts here at this point that I would, if I were teaching, I would want to make sure the person's right with me in all these areas. 
I would want them, and these are my asides I would have in my margin of my book. This area of practical sanctification, it's hard because of the conflict that's within us between our old man and new man. And everybody sitting in that Bible study would say, yeah, every day is hard. Okay, I would want them to understand it's a lifelong struggle and process so that they don't get discouraged by saying, I still battle this. Did any of you do that when you were first saved? I kept on cussing and, uh, after I was saved. And the first few months, I just assumed I wasn't saved anymore because I still cussed. And it got extremely discouraging that those things weren't out of my life right away. And so that, I think that happens to a lot of people that some besetting sin uh, just haunts them. And it, hey, it's going it's to happen. It's going to become a lifelong process. And just in case you're wondering, I don't cuss. Okay, that, that was early in my Christian life. The Lord gave victory over that. Um, it requires we change what we used to do, say, accept, and put on a new life. I think it's important for people to be able to understand that just because they did it before doesn't make it right. Just because I blew my top and that's the way I am that doesn't mean it can keep on going. If it's, if it's ungodly, it's got to change. It, You've got to work on it. You gotta have to, I have to address that. Um, it means we have to say no to self and maybe no to others, people around us and the world around us. This idea of progressive sanctification, here is where you really want to stress in a Bible study with a young, young, young convert. You can, you can overcome sin in your life. You can. It can be done. Did any of you ever struggle with that at times, thinking, I'll never make it? Yes, no? Okay, thank you. There's two of us. Okay. But Paul says, remember, in, he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Remember that? What's the next verse? Do you remember? But we have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on. It's, just, it's a fabulous text. You, you, we, we can't stop with the discouraging part. That's so real. He says, but I thank God through Christ Jesus my Lord. Okay, so then with the mind I serve the flesh and with the, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh I serve. There is therefore now, okay, tremendous passage. Tremendous passage of telling them, encouraging them, they can overcome. It'll, it'll be a battle, but they can win this battle. Okay, in order to win the battle, you have to take advantage of the riches that God has given, the treasures that God has given. Let me see if I can illustrate it. There's a guy who died here recently, this is back in 2003, Joseph Leake died, and when he, gave, when he died, he gave a million, uh, $1.8 million to organizations for guide dogs, which is great, that's fine, we can do whatever he wants. The only issue was that when he died, his family never ever knew he had any money at all, because he lived like a pauper. You ever hear these stories? Where people do that? This guy wouldn't even have a TV. He would go to other people's houses to watch TV because he wanted to save on two things, buying a TV and electricity for all that it takes. And so he put off his home repairs. He bought secondhand clothes, which, again, there's nothing wrong with that. But he lived, his whole lifestyle was living a pauper's life and we looked, for those of you who think it's cool, great, he had a million eight dollars that didn't go with him, okay? 
He just left it to somebody. Here's a guy that many think Charles Dickens based Ebenezer Scrooge on. He's a true character from history. Um, name is John Elvis. And uh, he grew up as a young man in, in a family where, as you read already, his mother inherited after her husband's death right around $180,000, but she died of malnutrition because she just didn't want to spend money on buying lots of food. And so he grew up seeing this type of poverty, living in it. He decided he would live the other type of a lifestyle. So as a young man, he was a party hound for you know, that, that time in Britain. He spent money like there was no end to it, and he definitely befriended his uncle. His uncle was a real miser. When he would go to his uncle's um, estate and visit his uncle, he would dress like a pauper. He would pretend that he was like his uncle, a real Scrooge. And he would sit with his uncle, and they would talk about how people spend money by doing trips and buying racehorses, doing all the things that Elvis was doing behind his uncle's back. And so it worked. His uncle thought he was like him. His uncle left him his entire estate. But when his uncle left him his entire estate, he, kind of, he reverted to his uncle's form of living and went much further. There are stories about how when people came to the estate and they were visitors that the servants would take care of the horses. They'd put out the, the food, the fodder for the horses. He would go in afterwards after they went to sleep and take it all away because he didn't want to be paying for somebody else's horse, uh, care of the horse. He demanded that all of his guests go to bed when the sun went down because he didn't want to burn candles. It's too expensive. He would keep food with them. There's a story that when he was in Parliament that they had a lunch there and he pulled out a two-month-old pancake out of his pocket and he was eating it and his friends asked him why he was eating it. It was just because I haven't finished all those pancakes that were made two months ago and there's no sense in wasting food. There's a true story in history that when he found a rat eating a certain bird by a riverside, he beat off the rat so that he could have the bird take it home. He would not uh, do any repairs in his house. In fact, um, he lived like this pauper, that he would just, just absolutely, absolutely old clothes, so, so, so attired that when he'd go through the streets of London, people would often give him coins thinking he was a poor man. And he was thrilled that they would think that because it gave him more money. Um, the stories abound that when he was asked to run from Parliament, he said, I'll only do it if it, I don't have to pay any money. So he ran. He was an MP for a couple different terms when they asked him to run for a third term, but he would have to contribute to his own election. He refused to run. And by this time, he had multiple homes throughout London, and he would live in one until the repairs were so bad that the water leaking, different things, that he wouldn't repair them. He would just go to another one, and then another one, and another one. He never trained his, he never educated his boys. It's cost too much money, so his sons never got any education formally. But when he died, he left them the equivalent of $50 million. But he lived like a pauper. So we hear these stories of people doing that, and if we jumped into the spiritual realm, are there Christians who live defeated and pauper-like, and yet they're rich? Right? Right? They live defeated lives. And so the idea here is that you and I are supposed to be growing. Now, we looked at passages like this already. And let's just relate. Sanctification's goal. According to this passage, who are you supposed to become like? Okay, that's sanctific- 
sanctification's goal. You are to become like Christ. In what way? Okay? In this text, which way in particular? The way you think. Do you remember, do you remember the context? This passage is dealing with how you treat other people. Do you remember it at all? This is the passage talking about Yodius and Syntyche and all their different difficulties. And then he makes these comments about how they had these conflicts. And he says uh, this comment. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others what? Better than yourself. Okay. Look not every man on his own things, but every man should look on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. That's the context. The context is how you treat others, how you think about other people. So this area of growth is, okay, how I think, and especially how I think about other individuals and how I treat other individuals. Now, Romans 8, 29. You, we looked at this. If you weren't here the last week that we looked at, join us. Let's head over to Romans 8, 29, because this is a critical, critical text Hey, thanks for keeping up with me and for following along. This passage is often, and I mentioned last time, it's often confused, twisted to say that God chose only some people to go to heaven. He predestinated only a few to go to heaven, and he predestinated the others to go to hell. That's not what the text says at all. Okay? It says, for whom he did foreknow, he predestinated, he knew you would get saved. Doesn't mean he forced you. He knew you that you would respond to the gospel. Okay? For whom he did foreknow, he predestinated you to be what? Conformed to what? The image of his son. Okay? So in this passage, God's goal for you as a believer is to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Okay? It is for every one of us to act more like Christ, to think more like Christ, to, to be more dedicated like Christ. And in the context, the previous verse says, all things work together, okay, for good to those who are called according to his, the purpose is to become like Christ. So the context of that verse is the battles, the struggles, the trials you have, they're good if they, as long as you are responding because they're making you to become more like Jesus Christ. And so that's the goal that's happening here. Um, according to the following verses, what does sanctification prepare you for? Here, here's a verse for you. And I'm paraphrasing some things if I'm, and giving you context. If a man therefore purge himself of, from these, the these is the previous verse. The previous verses is shunned for profane uh, uh, and vain babblings. talks about Hymenaeus and Philetus who were vessels of dishonor coming in, falling away from the faith, teaching false doctrine. Now, keep that in mind. That's the context. If a man purge himself from these things, get from them, he shall become a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Okay. Simple and yet a little bit difficult here. What is God, does sanctification prepare you for? Sanctification is the first phrase. Purge yourself from profane babblings, false doctrines, those types of teachers or teachings, and then what happens? What's somebody? God will use you. That's the text. 
That's the context. God will use you in particular, what, what, what is he referring to these people being used for? They were teachers. Okay, before that even. Okay, those previous, those previous guys mentioned, they were vessels unto dishonor. He wants to use you as a vessel unto honor by comparison to teach, to train, to disciple. The idea here is that you can help to grow others as you work on sanctification. And not only do you have a ministry this way, but also then what happens in the long run. That's prepared unto every good work. Okay, So there's two things in this passage that are brought out. Sanctification helps you to become a better teacher, discipler, and it'll help you to produce good works in your own life. Tremendous passage. Tremendous passage. Something that you and I need to work at constantly. So let's, let's pause with the person in the Bible study. Let's go back to last week, and let's put in even together this week. Why, why should we live sanctified lives? Why should we do it? Okay, there you go. One of the first things is it's the will of God. God demands it. It's the will of God. We've seen that already. Let's go back, and we've seen this already. We're to become more like Christ while we do it. So God demands it. I can become more like Christ. Okay, we saw that today. Let's go back to last week. Failure to do so will bring tragedy. This passage that we're referring to, whatsoever a man sows, okay, okay that's, the tra- that's, that's the text of Galatians. And also, we talked last week, our heart will deceive us. The idea that there is difficulty if we walk in the flesh, there will be, there will be all kinds of difficulty. So we talked about that last week. You want to reiterate this with the person. Why should I live a sanctified life? God's will, become more like Christ, failure to do so. We owe it to God because of what he's done for us. For we are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies, okay? That whole concept. And let me give you a last one here. You're, you're dealing with a new convert. Another reason why they, because they can. They can live a holy life. This is where most of us struggle. Most of us just think, I can't get over my temper. I can't get over the gossip. I can't get over the anger I feel towards somebody. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. I can't become the spouse I'm supposed to be. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You can. Okay, it takes effort on your part and working together. So how do I become more like Christ when I still have a sin nature? I still have to deal with the world around me that is ungodly. I still have a powerful enemy. Do we have an enemy that wants to trip us up? Okay, does he want us to be sanctified? No, no. Does he ever attack people in church leadership? Yes, because it'll trickle down through and discourage others. How do I become sanctified? There's a process. And in this booklet now, he's going to give us a process. And in this process, he's going to start us to say something that we've already talked about. Sanctification is a work of God. But let's go back to where we started and we'll stop. We have to keep in mind this is a work of God. It's not a work that I can do in and of myself by keeping rules and regulations. It is not given out, dispensed. Sanctification is not given out by a church. 
that all of a sudden if you do everything they say, they're going to give you sanctification. Sanctification is God working in your heart. Okay, we'll stop there. There's so much to get started here. So you guys have been great. Thank you for your participation.